from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is Ag Day. A sight down under that some might want to unsee. When I first put it on, I was like, this doesn't work. <laughs> How one Olympic equestrian's costume landed him in hot water. Fighting back against the lack of labor with technology. You're taking a relatively untrained operator and making them an expert by using those automation features. See what was unveiled at this year's National Farm Machinery Show as part of Smart Farming Fridays. And milk producers face some tough numbers. We, we haven't seen that pick up. The latest look at the dairy ledger right now on Ag Day. Ag Day, presented by Pioneer. What's next happens when blood, sweat, and tears meet rain, wind, and sun. Pioneer, what's next happens here. Good morning, I'm Clinton Griffiths. The nation's dairy farmers continue to liquidate cows and produce less milk. The recent USDA milk production report showing U.S. milk production dropped for the seventh consecutive month. January's milk production was slightly over 19 billion pounds, a decline of more than 1% from a year ago. Now, the nation's cow herd also shrank to 9.3 million cows, the lowest total since November of 2019. It's a result of several months of lower milk prices, plus mediocre on-farm financial performance continues to weigh on overall output. Export and domestic demand have also been slow, especially for cheese, and that has been a drag on class three milk prices. You really have to look at, as, at cheese as your leader or some other outline, let's say butter like it was here early in the year when it led the way higher. None of those are leading the way higher right now. They're still continuing to languish. For some reason, we just didn't see that demand market cycle in. Maybe it's the combination of overseas, higher dollar today. Let's call it 15 to 20%. I'd like to think 20% of our milk in some form or another heads overseas. Uh, we, we haven't seen that pick up. Now, analysts continue to be puzzled by how cheese prices are struggling to hold gains with the biggest drop in milk production in years. Taking a closer look at the state breakouts, New Mexico once again had the steepest decline in milk production with 97 million fewer pounds and 42,000 fewer cows. Texas also saw a drop of 56 million pounds and 15,000 fewer cows. This is partly due to the large barn fire last April at South Fork Dairy Farm in Dimmitt. South Dakota saw an increase of 39 million pounds with 21,000 additional cows. Not the news many U.S. farmers will want to hear. This year, Brazilian soybean exports are reportedly double that of the U.S. The University of Illinois taking a deep dive into the numbers. It says last year, Brazil's soybean exports in green reached a record 3.7 million bushels. That's up 29% from 2022 as Brazil hit a new record for production. Meanwhile, the U.S. shipments of soybeans in blue declined by 14% to 1.8 million bushels. The U.S. and Brazil supply more than 80% of global exports. China accounts for about 60% of total soybean imports, and soybeans are the largest ag commodity exports to China by both the U.S. and Brazil. While the West Coast has been getting slammed with rain, it 
hasn't extended much past the western mountains. The latest drought monitor showing much of the country east of the Rockies as well as the southwestern U.S. have received little to no precipitation. Right now, just under 20% of the nation is in drought with just over 1% in extreme drought with one area of key concern there in Iowa. It's going to feel more like March or early April across much of the country as we close out the week. Meteorologist Matt Engelbrecht has a look ahead. Yeah, it is though going to come with a bit of a price. You see the map behind me here gives you an idea in terms of the likelihood of above average high temperatures. It's not even close. We're not talking maybe they'll be above average. We're all the way to the right side of the legend. Very high confidence parts of the Midwest into the Northeast. Uh, well above average between the 27th and the early start of March, but it It'll come with a bit of a price as we start to warm these temperatures up and start to get into more of a spring feel. You remember severe weather season comes with spring, so we're going to keep our eyes peeled. Looks like next Tuesday and Wednesday, a low pressure system or a trough will try and develop and bring some cold air with it. Uh, not Arctic cold air, or rather cold enough air that we're going to start to see these two air masses combine possibly result in some severe weather Tuesday and into Wednesday of next week. But otherwise, the temperature outlook, uh, as we were just talking about, stays warm all the way through the early part of March. And a great day to check out the hen house. This video coming in from us, Phil. The family farms, Chamberlain Family Farms, as they made sure all the animals on the farm are fed and safe. A little bit of snow on the ground here and there. I'll have more on your forecast coming up. Another company that provides cleaning services for slaughterhouses is accused of using child labor. The U.S. Department of Labor accusing Fayette Janitorial Service of Memphis of employing 14 underage workers to clean a Purdue Farms poultry plant in Virginia and nine children at a Seaboard Triumph Foods pork processing plant in Sioux City, Iowa. In a filing, the Department of Labor alleges Fayette hired workers to fill overnight sanitation shifts. It says one worker was as young as 13 years old at that Virginia plant. Investigators allege the miners were used to clean kill floor equipment. They say at least one 14-year-old at the Virginia facility suffered severe injuries while employed by Fayette. The department is asking a district court in Iowa to impose a temporary restraining order on the company to stop it from using child labor. Now you'll remember we told you a U.S. Department of Labor investigation back in 2022 found more than 100 kids working overnight for Packers Sanitation Services. Flip Your Soil on Ag Day is brought to you by ESN. Hear how farmer Heath Cottrell achieved award-winning corn yields with ESN Smart Nitrogen. Learn more at smartnitrogen.com. Ranchers in drought areas of the country have had very little grass production on their rangeland the last few years. But as the moisture starts to return, Ag Day's Michelle Rook shows us how they can flip their soil to achieve higher production. As the drought starts to break here in cattle country, producers need to reestablish stands and pasture and grassland before they reintroduce cattle. That can be achieved through a targeted nutrient management and weed control program, and that will also yield more pounds of grass per acre. Drought still lingers in more than 14% of the nation's cattle production areas, according to the U.S. Drought Monitor for the week of February 13th. However, last year at this same time, 54% of cattle country was in drought, so pasture and rangeland in many areas has seen a big improvement. 
We're seeing a lot more moisture across the U.S. We're seeing more states come out of uh, drought stress. And the biggest thing is getting more pounds of grass on our acres for our units of cattle. To achieve that, Canix says it starts with a baseline soil test and producers can get assistance from their local extension agent or NRCS representative. She recommends fertilizing pastures in late winter or early spring when those areas have just received moisture or there's precip in the forecast. Fertilizer is great. We can do it through liquid um, aerial applications or we can do dry ground rigs and, and we even see some dry go out by air. But it's good because it gives that grass a boost. It gives it a boost coming off of a, either some moisture in the spring or if what little bit we do get, we want all that moisture to go to our grass. Koenig couples that with a weed control program to get ahead of weeds when they're small. She says this is especially important for improving range and pasture land after successive years of drought. The weeds can sit dormant for a long time in the soil and when we finally get a moisture event, they're going to bloom and they're going to take off. And so it's crucial for ranchers to be scouting their pastures. And when we know we're going to be getting some moisture coming off the spring is to combo that and get your herbicide out and get your broadleaves weeds taken care of so the grass can and can grow. Koenig also recommends monitoring the stand in season to make sure it's recovering and to identify any weed escapes. I'm Michelle Rook reporting for Ag Day. All right, thanks, Michelle. Now, it was another tough day for both corn and soybeans, but hogs saw some signs of life. We'll talk markets coming up next. And later, we're off to Louisville to discover what's hot at the National Farm Machinery Show. Corn continues to drop. Is there any hope of prices going back up for farmers with crops still in the bin? Michelle Rook is back with some insight in Markets Now. Well, another mostly lower day in the grains on Thursday. Dwayne Bussey with Bolt Marketing back with us. And Dwayne, more new contract lows in the corn market. How much of this has been fund selling versus farmer selling? Well, I think this week it's a little bit of both, but it's actually a lot of farmer selling. I mean, we've talked about the funds and everyone's seen the Commitment of Traders report, the the charts, right? Funds went from long to short, probably record short now, but this week is probably mostly farmer selling because we've got option expiration coming up. That means there's a lot of basis contracts that need to be set here or rolled once again uh, this week or early next week. So I think this is a lot of farmer just getting me the heck out of this market selling. Well, the soybean market looked like it pulled down the corn market and made some new lows for the move here. How much of that is just the South American basis, which has continued to be so weak? I think it is hedge pressure and selling pressure in South America. I mean, we've got a lot of trade estimates that keep lowering the Brazil crop size and lowering it to numbers that are starting to be a little bit eye-popping even to me. But here's the thing is their price is still way under ours. So unless their basis changes, Michelle, I'm going to just go with they've got a comfortable size crop uh, and we're not competitive. Therefore, our prices need to dip lower. Does that mean we're going to take out the contract low? We're, we're so close right now. Um, I'd almost think that the market would like to dip below it just to run some sell stops. Um, you know, but we are near support for maybe that's a 1151 area. Uh, I think we do probably run them just a little bit, but after that point, I don't know if I really want to be bearish the soybean market anymore. What about the wheat market? It's been holding up a little bit better than corn or soybeans, especially in the Chicago contract, hasn't it? 
Very interesting trade there this week in Chicago wheat. You know, the funds have been heavily short for a long time in that market. And you've got this week, you got Russian wheat prices making three-year lows, Europe wheat prices lower, Australia wheat prices lower. And really the newest story going into the week was that we need to catch up in the U.S. and go lower as well. And just as you say that, it's like the funds decided we don't want to be short as many contracts anymore. We've had a couple of really nice bullish days up. Fundamentals are still very bearish, so it's hard to get behind it. But I guess short covering is the beginning of all good rallies. So interesting trade in Chicago wheat. Thanks for joining us, Wayne Butsy with Full Marketing. We'll have more Ag Day coming up. For marketing advice, call Bolt Marketing, a futures and options brokerage firm. I just looked at a video, the hen house with a little snow on the ground. Here's a look at the current snow depth. Now, right now, we're not seeing snow depth down to about a half an inch or even to a three inches back into parts of Pennsylvania, New York City. There is some snow still on the ground through Pennsylvania and to the northeast. It's just the depth isn't as extreme as what it's showing here. Otherwise, the bigger story is the lack of snow in and across the Midwest, the Plains, the Dakotas. Why should there be? Now, we're talking about warmer than average temperatures for an extended period of time. Now, going into the weekend, there's going to be a weak clipper system that tries to come through, but we're going to warm up very quickly on the other side of it. So in regards to a snowpack, not expecting any big changes in that map that you saw there over the next couple of days. If anything, especially into the Northeast, will start to diminish the snowpack with the warm air that is coming. That's going to start at the end of the weekend. This is the jet stream coming up on Saturday. Start to pick up more zonal flow, but more importantly, this ridge of high pressure is going to start to dominate the forecast Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. As we talked a little bit before, when you start to get these temperatures well above average, like we're going to be seeing, you got to keep an eye out for systems like this, a trough, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, working across the United States. This is a quick hitting system, but it could be an impactful one as well. The potential for severe weather with those above average highs and the colder temperatures associated with this U, this broad U, this trough, uh, we could be looking at uh, some severe weather Tuesday and Wednesday uh, in through parts of uh, southern Midwest, but also uh, into the south as well. So look what happens on the other side of it, though. Now this moves through very quickly and then ridging once again. So we get these short stints of some cooler temperatures and the possibility for some severe weather, but we go right back up with that ridge building back to the west. As for your Friday, this is at 7 o'clock in the morning. A relatively quiet, a weak clipper system is going to try to come through parts of the Midwest Friday night and into early Saturday morning. Plaza, North Dakota, partly cloudy, high around 41 degrees. Idaho, sunny, high about 54 degrees. Nampa, that's a fun one to say, low of 30. And what about Crew, Virginia, showers high of 60 degrees. New numbers from the Association of Equipment Manufacturers shows four-wheel drive tractor sales grew more than 1% in January. That's the only segment to post growth last month. But that's not stopping major ag equipment manufacturers from rolling out new equipment. Farm Journal's Tyne Morgan visited this year's farm machinery show in Louisville, Kentucky to see more. Hot off the manufacturing line, Case IH rolled out a new combine just two weeks ago. And the key feature is automation. It's a feature and I could talk about a feature, but more importantly, it's solving the number one issue our customers have today, which is labor scarcity. 
and not only labor scarcity, but the skill of that laborer. This AF-11 combine comes with AFS Harvest Command, something Case IH also launched in mid-range combines last summer. You get in this machine, you use our Harvest Command feature set, you're taking a relatively untrained operator and making them an expert by using those automation features. While labor continues to be one of the biggest pain points for farmers today, full autonomy is still on the horizon for Case IH. We aren't towards full autonomy, which was your question, until we automate every little building block along the way, driving, turning, loading or unloading, um, setting the machine, which is this harvest command feature, but each building block uh, along the way towards full autonomy is what we're working on. Farm Journal's technology editor, Matthew Grassi, was on hand at the Consumer Electronics Show, or CES, earlier this year in Las Vegas. Egg was pretty prevalent on the floor there. A lot of stuff talking about artificial intelligence and agriculture, using that to make farmers' uh, decision-making process simpler, more accurate. While autonomy continues to be a focus for ag at these shows, this year there was also a push for electrification. Taking these tractors and electrifying them, getting away from diesel, was seemed to be a trend in a lot of automation and robotics. So it touched really on all the uh, all the trends in tech, I would say. Instead, this year, Grassi says one of the coolest things he saw was with Bobcat. I would have to start with the uh, the Bobcat AT450X enabled by Agtonomy Utility Tractor. It was just a, a an amazing ecosystem that they've created on this electrified automated tractor. And really the, the real power and brains behind it is the mobile app that Agtonomy, the team there, has designed for it. I mean, you can pass this thing from, you could be hundreds of miles away, thousands of miles away through the through the app, and it's just really powerful, giving those farmers more time to spend uh, doing the things they love versus sitting on a tractor. Like most electric tractors today, it's a smaller machine that's filling a need in California. Right now, finding a home on high-end vineyards. So, seems like a specialty crop-focused uh, solution, but... I think that the combination of tech there has some interesting applications to row crop as well. Machinery Pete says even with commodity prices creeping lower, equipment is still in high demand. The advancements with new equipment, farmers are leaning in. Uh, it's all about ROI. So if, if this new piece of equipment, this new combine, this new high-speed disc, whatever, if it can make them better, even though dollars are tighter, my sense is farmers are willing to do that. While Machinery Pete is watching equipment values show some signs of change, he says it's impressive to see just how resilient overall farm machinery prices continue to be. All right, thanks, Tyne. Well, the right equipment makes for an easier job. How this equestrian rider nearly lost his because of a costume choice in the country. Horseplay Down Under is capturing clicks around the world. Australian Olympic equestrian Shane Rose decided to ride around on his horse wearing a mankini. It's the male version of the bikini, and as you can see, it leaves little to the imagination, hence why this video is blurred out. Now, the event was meant for costumed riders, but Shane's costume, or lack thereof, 
really stood out. Now Shane says he used his hat to cover his front and wrapped himself in electrical tape to hold things in place, but that mankini provoked a single spectator complaint and the sports governing board suspended Shane while his conduct was reviewed. How did he review the mankini? When I first put it on, I was like, this doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Not the most comfortable uh, equipment and becomes less comfortable on a horse. But fans rallied to Shane's support and in no time, Shane cleared the final hurdle with Equestrian Australia clearing him, saying there was no breach of the code of conduct. But can you imagine doing chores in something like that? And that's all the time we have this morning. We're sure glad you tuned in. From all of us here at Ag Day, I'm Clint Davis. Have a great day.